Hi, I'm Christopher Rice. And I'm Eric Shaw Quinn. And Eric and I aren't just podcasters. And bitches. That's right. We're also authors. And you can buy all of our books at www.thedinnerpartyshow.com or tdps.tv and wherever ebooks are sold. At thedinnerpartyshow.com or tdps.tv, you can check out my Right Murder mystery series. Or sample my Burning Girl thrillers. The best part is, the more you buy our books, the less likely we'll end up filling the spot with an annoying ad for a napkin that counts your calories. The TDPS Network, alienating potential advertisers one promo at a time. Christopher Rice. And I'm Eric Shaw Quinn. And you're listening to TDPS Presents Christopher. And Eric. And we are back with another true crime TV club. Bum, bum, bum. Bum, bum, bum. We, we need to get like, yeah, music. We need music. We yeah, need music. we need some kind yeah, of music. So we so think alike. We're so in sync. But we're, we're just friends. We're not married, we're, but we're in sync. Um, you say that a lot. I want. Are if you there, worried that no, people are going to think if that? No, if there is a tall, bony-faced British crime solver out there who is falling in love with the sound and, of your voice, fair, I don't want him to think that you're taken. And to be fair, it would be okay if he was an investment banker. Okay, <laughs> a tall, yeah, bony-faced British be investment banker. Let's be inclusive be of too. all rich people. The crime people. finding, find solving is really just sort of a like. A television preference. It means he's got a sharp mind. You like sharp-minded yeah, men. That is true. Sharp-minded men who are also seven feet tall and, and British. I will say, I think people who like succeed as stockbrokers and hedge fund managers must be math wizards. Have you ever heard the stuff that those people talk no, about? No, it's I can't. Just, I, I, t- I tone out. I just start hearing a buzzing sound after a minute or two because it's like I no longer have any sort of basis in reality to relate to. Whatever dif- differentials or whatever it is, the hell they're talking about. I don't. I don't know. It's like that scene that you're so uh, such a fan of in the movie The Big Short, where they have to explain what the fuck The Big Short was, and so they have Margot Robbie explain it in a jacuzzi full of bubbles because bubble he bath, says, "If we didn't do this, you would champagne. never pay attention right. to the mechanics of this." And she was right. Transaction, and she's right. I think they actually have a, several characters continue to explain it. Anyway, we're not here to talk about The Big they Short. Have a whole movie. We're here to talk it. about a crime. We're here to talk about an episode. Um, excuse me, the big short was actually. I know, but Margot. Even nobody was prosecuted for it. I was speaking of the elevated and sophisticated artistic choice to have Margot Robbie in a jacuzzi explaining complicated finance. Very high tone. We're here to talk about something that is really not high tone, which is this episode of People Magazine Investigates. The Darkest of Nights is the name of the episode itself. It's in season one. It's episode 10. If you want to stop listening to the podcast and go watch it so you can feel included in the discussion in that way, you can. It's not a requirement. I just got to get all the that all sounded stuff a little off. dismissive. Well, I feel you like feel included, or you can trust us to break it down for you. Because let me tell you something: there's going to be a lot of breaking down. Oh my today. god! There's like 28 okay. pages of notes look, on this. Look here, this is inside behind peeking behind the curtain here at TDPS. I was making, I was writing up show notes for our episodes when we would do True Crime TV Club specifically. I called uh-huh. them cheat sheets. They were like two or three pages. And they had people's names on them and but, details that you need, the name of the town, stuff you wouldn't necessarily have be able to call to mind at but, once, which is great. It was inevitable that Eric would ask a specific question about a detail from the show, which would not be on the cheat sheet. So that happened the last time we did True Crime TV Club. And I the think penalty buzzer was sound, <laughs> and Christopher would be disqualified from being on the podcast. Uh, my cheat sheets would be impugned, and so I, because I am a person who is constantly looking to evolve and grow, um, wrote <laughs> notes on this particular episode that are one, two, Voluminous, three, four, I believe would be the five, word that you're six, looking for. Seven, eight. I wrote nine pages of notes. Front and back. Front, front and back. Nine is nine, regardless of whether or not it's front and back. It's 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 nine total pages of content. Really compendious. And part of that, I'm going to say, and some of it was because I didn't want to leave out any detail, and we will see. I swear to God, if you ask me something that wasn't in the cheat sheet I'm this sure episode- Who will never know, because they're so vast. This is going to become a knitting we'll podcast. Have to hire a squa- gonna- we'll have to hire a scholar to go through and <laughs> determine whether or not- I like The, the TDPS thing- archivist will review them. I like the thing them. where we say, well, maybe one of our listeners will know, and they'll actually post it on the page. Yeah, oh, yeah sometimes they do. So- sometimes they do. That's really cool, because that's actually interacting. Okay. 
Okay, but moving and on. being a part of the podcast. Okay, so my first question is, oh, okay. Let me just say this before we begin. This was the first one we did where I got physically ill watching it. I literally got physically ill watching it. And that's all I'm going to say, and we can get into why as we Why did go. we pick this one? How did that happen? <laughs> well, we had a planning meeting, which clearly you remembered. Clearly. Um, we uh, were doing an episode, we previously did an episode of Vanity Fair Confidential, right. and we sort of thought the sister show to that show is People Magazine Investigates. It has a similar format, with the exception that this show has, I'm going to call them light reenactments, because they're silent, they're still stupid, they're still unnecessary, they put actors, images, and countenances right up against the real people, it's Which not necessary, confusing. it's confusing, it shouldn't be done. Anyway... And so we read the episode synopsis of this, and it it didn't have a lot of details in it. Certainly not as many details as my show notes. No. Uh, we, small town in Alaska, murder by fire. Or Tolstoy novels that don't have as many I, I, details <laughs> I, as your show notes. I wouldn't notes. go that far. I'm reading some Tolstoy right now, and it's, maybe that's what inspired details. me. Um, that could be it. So we saw an episode summary that basically said Alaska death by fire or murder by fire which isn't technically true it's a cover up using fire thank god because then some we know somebody wasn't burned alive and that's really what pulled us into this story but there we didn't put much more thought in it than that i was because i was really trying to think what about this caused us to pick this mm-hmm. like cuz there are lots of seasons and lots of other episodes and i was just curious cuz i didn't remember the process so it really was this we was didn't put a lot of thought into also, it also we had this meeting the day after we took down your Christmas Christmas tree, which we talked about briefly on a previous episode. That's when episode, we picked this episode? That we had that meeting and picked this episode on that day. So we were very tired. Really? <laughs> yeah. So basically, oh, party I we people. Had picked it way before that. No. Basically, party oh, okay. people, what we're telling you is that we've, we're delivering you a half assed product. We were today. high on donuts. We were high on donuts. We were exhausted and uh, subsumed by pine needles. Um, and so we yeah, picked. That tree was, that was a wrestling match. Anyway, so I. I I front loaded all I have to say about this episode, and we can walk through it now together. But I'm I'm reading, I'm inferring from your comments that you were not the biggest fan of People Magazine investigates the darkest of nights. Well, they had an it was kind of an unusual technique. Now, to be fair, there wasn't really any mystery involved. Mm-hmm. Like there was a couple of days right off the bat where it was unclear, but then it got cleared up pretty quickly and so it was really then just a matter of recounting what happened Mm -hmm. so on that side of it in terms of like that kind of dateline thing of having it drawn out to hearing the conclusion right like there wasn't any of that there was no suspense as to like it was or there was very little Mm -hmm. There was very little suspense um, involved in the structure of it. Um, It was, you know, it was more like a People magazine article. It was a a story about something that happened. And so they were pretty clear about what happened right off the bat and then kind of continued to um, explore it from the angle that they chose. So, yeah. And, you know, recreations. I'm less put off by recreations, though I have to say these I found unbelievably confusing because... So few of the actual participants were included. Yes, that's correct. Um, so then it was, and so everybody that you were seeing was either silent footage or silent recreation, and it became unclear which was which mm-hmm. from time to time. I was like, so is this really the guy, or is this a recreation of the guy? Or it was, yeah, it was weird. Mm-hmm. Anyway, so yeah, it, it, I would like to see some other episodes from the from the series, right? But it would not go right up there like the top of my list. I was I was not as blown away by their by the actual, you know, the the, the true crime rep- reportage yeah. of this as I have been by some of our our other um, favorites on it. That said, what a fucking story! What a fucking story! I mean, I really was I was disturbed by it in a way, and we've talked about some disturbing things, but there was a certain level, and, oh, I, and we'll get into bad. the story and walk through it, and I don't want to spoil anything. But the the villains of the piece, if you will, the established criminals, because by the time we get to the end of it, we do know who committed the crime. They uh, discuss when their crimes, the- their hideous crimes, with a level of detachment that I found absolutely sickening, um, and I'll detail that when we get to it. So anyway, okay, let's set the scene. 
We're in a little town called Craig, Alaska. It's in the Alaskan archipelago. When and did this it, happen? Like many, uh, 2004. Okay, so it was in the notes. 2004, yes, it was in the notes. We've not yet hit something that's not in the notes, <laughs> but we'll be there soon. Uh, this town, like many in Alaska, is not connected to the road system there, which always just blows my mind. But but there's no bridge to this island. You have to either fly to it or take a boat. Right. And they didn't make it clear whether or not you could take a boat to the nearest uh, city. They speak of Anchorage and Juneau, which are both large Alaskan cities, as being... I don't know, kind of an equal distance away. But a good distance away. A good distance away. Um, this, the focus of the story, if you will, not to give anything away too soon, is a woman named Lori Waterman. She is a special education teacher's aide. She is described by just about everybody who knows her as a saint. She is church-going, although we as gay people know that doesn't always mean saint. Um, she has many friends. Um, she is described as the, quote, ideal resident of Craig, Alaska. Her husband is a man named Doc Waterman. He is a local real estate agent and the president of the school board. So a very upstanding, in the community at least, family in this small Everybody town. Everybody knew who they were. It's a small town. Everybody knew them. Everybody liked them. It wasn't like they were figures of much controversy or, you know, they were, they were no, not the sort of family about whom you would expect to hear a salacious story. And then there's her da- their <clears throat> daughter, excuse me. Uh, 15-year-old Rochelle, that's Rochelle with an A, which I had to correct myself on several times. She's raised on the island by them. She is described as smart and talented. She's involved in a wide variety of extracurricular activities, including volleyball. However, she has recently, around 2004, started a blog because blogs were very big then. I think this was pre-social media, right? Like. Social media was sort of like 2006, maybe, 2007. I would think so. Um, She starts a blog where she begins to vent about her life. And the title of the blog is My Crappy Life, which... I don't know. It doesn't seem that out of the ordinary for a 15-year-old Sounds in a small town. Sounds about average for... And everybody who spoke about it said it was about average, about the sort of stuff you would expect to hear from a 15-year-old. Discontented, everything is wrong, you know, the, from the title right on down. But the woman who you described as wearing an important necklace... Yes, this was, is the executive editor, one of the executive editors of People, Kate Coyne. She is addressing us. as She's one of the talking heads, if you will. And I said in our show notes, she has fabulous hair and important neckwear. It's a very, it's an important moment. Quite a necklace, yes. It's it's quite a necklace. Anyway, she was, she sort of brushed it off. She was like, yeah, it's the kind of stuff you'd expect to hear from a 15-year-old teenage girl. They quote her as making a statement on the blog early on in the episode uh, where she says, everyone who's important to you leaves. And because her family life is depicted as being very stable, I took that to mean that she was friends with a lot of older kids at school who graduated and didn't stay in the town. Yeah, everybody, once you graduate, you get out of town and go somewhere where you can do something. Exactly. Whereas, like, I grew up in a reasonably large city, New Orleans, and the graduates left, but they came back. They stayed reconnected, and maybe that wasn't the case in Craig, Alaska. Or they got arrested for DUI on their way out of town. Absolutely. Were brought back by the authorities. Is this New Orleans (laughs) that you're talking about, or Craig? I think it could be either one. Yeah, I think it probably could, but certainly New Orleans. So, on the weekend in question, Rochelle goes to an away volleyball game in Anchorage, Alaska. Doc, her father, and Lori's husband goes to a leadership conference in Juneau, Alaska. And Lori is left alone for the weekend. Um, She apparently plans to stay busy. She's going to do a lot of gardening. She's going to run errands. She's going to do all sorts of stuff. This is not considered to be a very dangerous town because it's so isolated. They say the worst things that happen here are DUIs and um, fist fights, you know, yeah, drunken bar fights. fights. And, you know, I won't, don't want to minimize. DUIs can no, be pretty bad. Absolutely. Doc and Rochelle both return home. It doesn't say if they return home at the same time. It's, it says they return home at almost exactly the same time. Okay. But, uh, even though they're coming from completely opposite directions they do reach home at almost exactly the same time okay so they kind of i I guess the the implication was they kind of alibied each other Mm -hmm. for the 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 return because they they were they were discovering this together right and what they discover is that Lori does not come to say hello which is very strange right she's not home her van is not there 
uh, that they don't know where she could possibly be, but they're not immediately concerned until they go into the master bedroom and see that the bed is unmade, and then they go into the kitchen and find an open bottle of wine. And Lori was a neat Nick who didn't drink. So both of those two details are very odd. Hi, I'm Christopher Rice. And I'm Eric Shaw Quinn. Do you have a question or comment about this podcast? Then come share it with us on our Facebook page at facebook.com slash thedinnerpartyshow, no spaces, and we'll do our best to answer it on the show. Just watch out for our aggrieved manservant, Shea Butters. He moderates the page, and he's been known to talk smack about the two of us. Most of what he says about you is true, though. We can discuss this later. That's right, at facebook.com slash thedinnerpartyshow. No, I meant in the car. Um, Rochelle and her father, they drive around Craig, Alaska for a while looking for her, looking for any sign of her van. They start calling friends. There's no trace of her. At this point, I think the timeline of how the episode is reporting events gets a little jumbled because they say that Doc Waterman finds some details in the house which are odder to him than the unmade bed and the wine bottle. And one is he finds a little piece of latex that might be the tip of a rubber glove. I think it was in the kitchen or on the floor of the the living room. Floor of the bedroom. I think that's right. Yeah. But yeah, it was odd, but they don't, because they're from such a small town and it's so low impact, they don't really seem to suspect anything much has happened. They're concerned, but they're not that concerned because they just don't see that anything that bad could have happened. But do you think on some level, and this is me projecting myself into a small town and I've I've never lived in one, you would think there aren't that many places for Lori to be, so how can she be missing? I don't know how big the island is. Yeah. There seems to be a fair amount of wooded area on the island, mm-hmm. so one could be, you know, lost in the woods, I guess. Like, there's right. there's a that seemed to be the case, but honestly, I don't know enough about the terrain or the, the island itself. Mm-hmm. But the Alaskan archipelago, you know, my advice, stay in the car. Yeah, stay in the car. Whatever you do, stay in the car. Stay in the car. Take the car from one place to another. Stay in it when you're moving, especially, because right. you should never get, get out, out of the car. Get out of the car, and then they never hear from you again. Exactly. Stay involved, the police. On Monday morning, Rochelle goes to school, which shocks everybody. And her classmates and teachers describe her emotions as being all over the map. She's laughing one moment. She's crying another moment. People think she is behaving very strangely. But her mother is missing and everybody knows it because it's a small town. Literally everybody knows it. So they kind of chalk it up to mom's missing and she doesn't know how to act. Yes. I believe this happens on that Monday or very shortly thereafter. A hunter is hunting deer on the outskirts of town in the vast wooded area. He's approaching a spot where he sees um, a tendril of smoke coming up out of the woods. Uh, He calls the authorities. He spots a van that appears to be burning, but he calls the authorities really quickly. It begins raining. The state troopers come out. They go to the spot that he identified and... I got confused here. Again, this was a timeline issue. Is the van still consumed by flames when the state trooper finds it, or is it sort of smoldering? I think maybe the the, the smoke is smoldering. I didn't get the impression that it was there was any of that by the time the the police got there, partly because it was raining. Right. But it also isn't clear when the fire actually happened. Mm -hmm. So it might have been the night before. I mean— I don't actually know that. Right. So, but yeah, it is a little confusing when things took place. Right. Because they were gone all weekend and we don't know if they took place at the beginning or the end of the weekend. And so mm-hmm. it's a little, it, the, the timeline is in question. But, yeah. But since the crime ultimately isn't, mm-hmm. it doesn't really matter. No, I think what we're looking at is the, the liberties taken by the producers of this episode and how they wanted to present stuff and to try to build suspense. Because I think you're right, as we'll come to see, there is all no of suspense. this unfolded very quickly. And there wasn't There's a lot very of... little suspense. Like, we're almost to the conclusion. So, um, the van it was so badly burned, or is burning so badly... That the license plate has melted, melted, but they can see the VIN number and they know it is Lori's van, right? The van that has been missing as and long they found as she has been. 
very few remains inside. They did find remains, um, but they couldn't really. They were, the fire was so intense, mm-hmm. which I thought was also an interesting note. I wanted to talk about that because we've talked about that in terms of the forensics of our own books. It's very hard to get a fire to burn hot enough to incinerate a human body. Like crematoriums are unbelievably hot. And yeah. I had a difficult moment on a book I was working on where I realized I had written that in as a plot device and some people who were in a position to know were like, that fire would never burn hot enough to completely erase yeah. that person's identity it, it is, if you had a real a, team. It is a really... But in, what it, for whatever reason, it was not described, the, the, the fire has been so intense that the only really remaining part of the remains, identifiable part of the remains, is the skull. Is her skull. Which yeah. they say is jarred, badly yeah. jarred. A so badly jarred even skull. that is... Is pretty burned. And they are able to ID Lori from her skull. Uh, So upon hearing that Lori is dead, again, this is another timeline question. Doc, her husband, shares with the police that he found some suspicious things in the house. Excuse me. Um, this is the uh, rubber latex, right, and also, the wine bottle, the the unmade bed. But there were like blood there was stains on the bed, rope fibers in the bathroom as well. It seemed like there was a delineation between what he probably told the police initially when he went to them, and then what he decides to tell them in this moment. Well, yeah, and they they didn't find the rope fibers until after. He told them they came and searched the house. Got it. Yeah. After they found the body, he said, "Well, you know, we actually found some suspicious stuff at the house when we first got back, mm-hmm. because at first they were still looking to see if they could find her. They thought she might be stranded somewhere or lost in the woods, or they didn't know mm-hmm. that this was going to be other. But once they'd found the remains, they apparently really stepped things up. Right. So they question Doc because they really because it's always 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 the, the cliche husband. is that it's always 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 the husband. We're but quoting. he was always 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 in Anchorage. So yeah, he absolutely he was in Juno. He oh, was in Juno. She was in Anchorage. Okay. Yes, and I'm sure we're going to have some Alaskans hopefully correct our geography here at some point. Um, he has an iron iron tight alibi. Yeah, he's he was there. Everybody, iron he, tight. Was, he was he was <laughs> as tight me. as iron. As tight as iron. I'm wearing iron underpants right now. That's impressive. So um, now the suspicion turns to Rochelle, um, because her last entry on her blog is her letting all of her blog readers know. Basically, my mom was murdered, so they're taking my computer. Because they're searching it along with anything else, so um, I'll post after they give me my computer back. Not exactly a blog post that's overwhelmed with with grief or you know anything. It's basically this kind of shitty, horrible thing happened, and my computer's being taken away. Right. Talk to you later. <laughs> um, they start to look at her blog, and well, Th- that's when a story begins to unfold. Some of her blog entries include entries like this one. Life is a dead, heartless mass when we're living it. It turns into a swirling, visceral beast when we are shut out. What What does that mean? It means that she was 15 years old at the time that she wrote it. <laughs> it's just like... Because that doesn't make any sense at all. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Like, how is being shut out the opposite of life? I don't know. Since you would have to still be alive in order to be shut out. Yeah, I, I, I just don't understand that. No but idea. I'm going to go with 15. But there was also discussion on this said blog of um, abusive incidents with her mom, mm-hmm. throwing her down a yeah. flight of stairs, she says, and all kinds of other claims of, you know, that, that she was having a bad relationship with her mom. Right. And so they bring her in for questioning. And during the questioning... The tales of abuse intensify. She even says her mom came into her room with a baseball bat and hit her legs with it. We're not given an explanation for her. she pulled a knife on her. Yeah, and these stories are not fitting with what the community believes to be true about Lori Waterman. Which doesn't she was mean they not true, but it's yeah. just, it's really shocking news. In fact, she actually said when she went back to school and they were like, are you sure you want to be back at school? She said, oh yeah, she probably just got drunk and ran off the road. Mm-hmm. That's what she says, even though her mother didn't drink. That's right. That's right. So... They begin questioning Lori rather aggressively, and they soon discover that Lori had relationships with several considerably older men. And one of them was a gentleman, and I use that term very loosely, named Brian Riddell. Brian is now being interviewed by People Magazine Investigates. What an, he's the principal 
um, talking head uh-huh. on this show. Yeah. And the first thing that he says, which should give you a giant red flag about Mr. Riddell, is that he had a brief courtship with Rochelle. He was very disturbed by the age difference between them. So he turned around and set her up with a friend of his, his best friend, who is the same age as him. He's actually two years older, right? Yeah, actually two years older. Yeah, right. so he was so disturbed about his the age difference that he passed her off to an older friend. And the he, she really hit it off with the older friend. And yes, Brian is clearly a man of deep principles, um, as we will soon see. Uh, Jason and so the Jason is his friend. Jason Arendt is the man's name. Okay. Um, Jason has first come to the attention of the investigators because when the uh, school principal brought Rochelle into uh, his office to break the news to her that her mother's body had been discovered in the burned out van, in bursts one of the janitors of the high school, who is in fact Jason, saying that he is there to take care of Rochelle during this terrible time and he is responsible for her, which seems really weird to the principal. Why is the janitor in my office right <laughs> Not now? Not to mention the authorities. <laughs> Not to mention the authorities. And so, yeah. So the the so that's really weird. Yes, Jason is a, a 20-something year, 25-year-old young man, 27-year-old young man. Yes. Who's living, whose yes. favorite thing is to play video games all night in his home in his mother's basement while smoking pot. Yes, which they call dope, which I, I thought gives a nice patina uh, of the why 1950s do you think they call it dope? to 1950s to this People magazine right? investigates. Yes, absolutely. It's charming. Very charming. Um, most of the um, bad shit that we are now hearing about Jason is coming from Brian. Because we never <laughs> see other than a confusing... Um, reenactment version of Jason and I guess an actual version of Jason in an orange jumpsuit walking across I'm guessing the cafeteria at the prison but it's hard to say yes spoiler alert Jason is going to jail eventually but you've probably been able to pick that up already yes there's one real photograph of Jason which they show over and over again in which he looks like he has been surprised masturbating in his mother's closet. He's sort of terrified and wide-eyed. It's like yeah. the least flattering it's, photo they could find not, of this it's person. Like, it's like your DMV photo. Yeah, exactly. So um, it turns out that Rochelle was hiding her relationship with Jason from most people in town, but not from her mother, who apparently was fully aware that this relationship was taking place. So now the police have Rochelle. They know about the relationship. They're asking her specific questions. She's getting really vague about the details. They're asking her how many times she had a sexual interaction with Jason. She's saying maybe like five or ten or thirty. She says not at all. Yeah. So she said it was absolutely not sexual. Yeah. That her mother was very opposed to it. She was really terrible. It was negative, but that he was a great guy and a perfect gentleman and whatever. But that was initially. And then the truth began to emerge. And then we cut back to Brian in his interview saying even worse and shittier things about his best friend who he at one point calls a blood brother. He says that Jason was basically overweight and pathetic and would have been absolutely grateful for any romantic attention he would have gotten from any woman, which is why he ended up with Rochelle, who he set Jason up with. So again, Brian's principles seem really sort of muddy and you're wondering why he's being interviewed with this painting behind him. The lady with the the lady with the neckwear actually referred to him as a robot. A robot, yes. Yeah, he's an unusual character. I this kind of gave me some well I'll bring that up a little later on. Yeah. I think we're almost to, to the climax of this. We're we're to page five of my notes, but we don't have to use half my notes. But I am glad that we haven't we have not reached a point where you have asked me a question that has not been covered in my show notes. Hi, I'm Christopher Rice. And I'm Eric Shaw Quinn. And Christopher and Eric is a production of the TDPS Network, which mm. you can support by visiting thedinnerpartyshow.com or www.tdps.tv. And by clicking on the gold Amazon box at the bottom right-hand corner of the home page, you'll ensure a portion of your subsequent Amazon purchases supports podcasts like this one. The same is true if you use any of the buy links on our website as well. And thedinnerpartyshow.com and tdps.tv is also where you can find all the episodes of our other podcast, The Dinner Party Show, which is full of celebrity interviews and sketch comedy that's gotten us banned in 20 states. That's not true. A man can dream. 
All right. Well, let's dream of everyone supporting our website. That way we can avoid putting an ad in this spot for a crowdsourced skin surgery app. So the story that is basically starting to assemble before the police from their various interviews, they're interviewing Rochelle. And we're actually seeing footage of Rochelle in the interview room. Right, which makes the reenactments even more confusing and unnecessary. Even more confusing and unnecessary, yes. Rochelle was alleging, as we said earlier, that her mother was physically abusive and violent with her. She was sharing these stories with Jason, her boyfriend, who was in turn sharing these stories with Brian. And now it seems that Brian, who seems like a detached interview subject, is becoming more and more involved in the action because he is explaining to us that he comes from an abusive home and he gets really angry when he thinks somebody else is in an abusive environment. And that is when we get the comment you just referenced from the executive editor who's saying basically that Brian is a robot who had to be programmed to do whatever he wanted him to do, as robots do. And what is becoming increasingly clear is that either Rochelle or Jason or Rochelle and Jason together, right? It's like three options were working to try to get Brian to kill Lori Waterman, Rochelle's mother. That's basically the story that is starting to take shape. Yes. So there is, and this is very similar to uh, Red Rum, which we discussed in episode eight. There is a botched attempt, and, and this is when... My disgust for Brian was tempered by a little bit of humor because he explains to us, the ignorant audience members at home, that he is a criminal mastermind and a man of his word. And when you ask him to do something, he is absolutely going to do it. So he decides that Lori, on a regular schedule, picks up her daughter from volleyball practice at school. He's going to shoot her with a rifle outside of the school, uh, which is going to take a lot of prep work and planning. He shows up at the appointed time, and he forgets the bolt to his rifle. Which I don't know what that is, but apparently you need that. Apparently you need that. That's correct. Uh, So needless to say, Lori Waterman is not murdered at volleyball practice that day. But that is a small consolation given what is to come. But it was a narrow miss on her part. She just didn't know how lucky she was. So Rochelle is claiming that she was aware that they were going to do this and asked them not to do it. And after she finds out how close he came to doing it, the Tanya Harding defense, she cut off contact with Jason. Right. She says to Jason, basically, we're not boyfriend and girlfriend anymore. You got a guy to try to kill my mother at volleyball practice. We're done. So not cool. Yeah. That is not the story that Brian and Jason share with the authorities. It doesn't seem like it's probably the story. Yeah, absolutely. That's what the 15 year old says. So we're then back to Brian's fucking interview again, where he gives us a chest-thumping speech. Because it's speech. mostly Brian. Yeah, it's and you'll see what Brian that show. means. We're about to get to what that really means. Um, he says, at this point, he and Jason are acting like there's they're past the point of no return. Because so, they, because they believe that she that Rochelle is at risk. Rochelle yeah. has continued to tell them that she's been. The knife has been pulled on her. She's been thrown down a flight of stairs. That she's all of- hit with a baseball bat yeah. on the legs. Um, so they begin plotting a more elaborate nighttime abduction and murder of Lori Waterman. And this is when Brian once again explains what a criminal mastermind he is. He goes to the trouble of scrubbing his body down, shaving off all of his body hair, collecting dirt from various parts of the island, which he plans to use at the crime scene to confuse the authorities, quote-unquote. And he then goes on to describe, in absolutely sickening detail, and with, I thought, a certain level of emotional detachment, his abduction and murder of Lori Waterman. And at one point during the description, he says, I was glad that I got rid of someone I thought was abusive, but I had that sick feeling in my stomach that you get when you murder a woman which he phrased sort of like one would say, I got that sick feeling when I realized I left the stove on at home. It's like, yeah, I don't know that sick feeling because I've never murdered a woman, yeah, Brian. It is, really, it is a really sort of horrendous kind of, he goes in the house, makes her drink a bunch of wine so that it'll seem like she's drunk. It appears that what he wants to do is stage it like a car wreck so that she's been killed. Right. So he gets her drunk, um, makes her drink a whole bunch of wine, takes her out... Um, 
in the van, ties her up and puts her in the back of the van, gags her and whatever, drives her out to the location, and then tries to break her neck, but can't manage to do it. Because he's such a criminal mastermind. Because he's such a criminal mastermind. So what he does instead, because his hands are gigantic, he just covers her nose and mouth and suffocates her. That's correct. And then puts her in the car. About this time, Jason joins him. Mm-hmm. Jason um, is waiting for them at the spot that they have picked out, which is on the far side of the island. Yes. And... Again, speaking to Brian's expertise as a criminal mastermind, he realizes if he can't break her neck, he cannot stage a car accident. Right. So the only way he's going to be able to kill her, because I don't, I guess he didn't have a gun or he didn't want to shoot her because that would be too obvious, is he suffocates her with a hand as right. you described. And then he realizes staged car accident is out. But before that moment, maybe that's what you were talking about, he takes her gag off in the car for a reason they don't explain. And all she begins saying is, Can I ask you a question? And they have every talking head in the episode repeat just those words to right. drive home her fear and right. her misery. Can I ask you a question? And she basically says, why are you doing this? And Jason says to her, because you are abusing your daughter. You know? Right. According to Jason. Right. That's what he said in the moment. Or Brian. Brian, yeah. I get them confused. At this point, it's like they're one person. It doesn't really matter. Yeah. So they decide to burn the car to destroy the evidence and conceal the fact that it wasn't a car wreck that killed her. Mm -hmm. It's not really clear how the car gets into the brambles where it winds up, but it does. And then they pour gasoline on it and are very successful in burning the car. If that was a a job, they could have made quite the living at it because that Mm -hmm. is something that seems – it was unclear to me. They In the recreations, they pour gasoline all over the car, but – that's the as much information as we really get as to why the car burned that badly. I, I am completely speculating here. This is not a scientific opinion, and this is also going in part off of what they do in the recreation. They put her in the trunk of the car, and the, if they started the fire in the trunk, could the trunk have like a hot box effect? I have no it, idea. I don't know. It was a very weird, like, it wasn't explained. Obviously, it was the case, mm-hmm. and so maybe they lucked into it. Maybe they had some specialized knowledge. One of them was a custodian, so maybe he had a sense of how do you got things to burn right? in disposing of garbage and whatever. I have no idea. Yeah. But that's what happened. Right. And that's kind of like, and then everything else is sort of... Then what happened? Um, the the thing that brings the hammer down kind of to some extent on all three of them, Rochelle, Brian, and Jason, is that they have given each other conflicting alibis. And as soon as they start to question Rochelle about her relationships to these older men, she says that they couldn't have uh, been responsible for the disappearance. At this point, they must have nailed down a time for the fire because she says at the time of the murder, um, I was talking to them on the phone from Anchorage, Alaska, where I was for my volleyball tournament, they separately say to the police at the time of the murder, we were in a place that had no phone coverage. Probably, I don't know if it was an attempt to say our cell phones can't be used to track us. I don't know how possible that was in 2004. But the point is, those alibis do not match up. They're all lying. They're clearly all, there's something else going on, and they're they're clearly all in on it. They brought Jason in, and he immediately began to just give everybody up. That's correct. Completely agrees to give everybody up. But the reason that they have to bring Jason in the way they do is that they ask Rochelle if she will wear a wire and go talk to the boys about the crime, and she refuses. Which they really find astonishing, like your own mother's murder and you will not help us. Mm-hmm. But Jason doesn't have any principles about it and is delighted to wear a wire. Absolutely. So he goes and picks up his friend Brian wearing a wire and they get in the truck and go out for a ride like you do to talk about the murder. And mm-hmm. Jason, Brian believes that since they're blood brothers, he obviously wouldn't betray him. Mm-hmm. And, and so in he, this moment... We have the reveal, and we talk about this a lot on Christopher and Eric's True Crime TV Club, the suspense that is possible to create about whether or not your interview subject is being interviewed in prison or not. And I have to say, this is one of the better ones in terms of technique. He did a better job of it. He had a regular shirt on. He had a painting on the wall behind him that was didn't look like a prison painting. No, I don't know what a prison painting look would look like. did not look like prison. And they pan down to reveal he is in prison pants and has been giving this interview from wherever he is spending the rest of his life. Yeah. Or 99 years of it. 99 years Without of the it. possibility of parole. That's absolutely. Which we learn in the title cards at the end of the episode. 
Exactly. And I think that's, we talked about, I think that happened on Vanity Fair Confidential, which we discussed in episode 10. I'm going to make sure I get the numbers right. You got to watch all the way through to the end because the title cards at the end sometimes give you that last piece of information that you really, really want. And that was especially yeah, I true think of this it is episode. A, I think it, particularly with um, true crime stuff that is more current, mm-hmm. they don't necessarily know what the outcome is at the time of they finish filming. And so there's right. nobody to just say it. So yeah. they added as title cards, but the sentences are are all posted at the end anyway. So they find a letter that this that she wrote that Lori Waterman wrote to her daughter, a handwritten letter. That's correct. That basically, you know, she's I love you, and I know things have been difficult between us, but you're my daughter, and I care about you, and I want to work this thing with you. I don't think there's something wrong with. I mean, it's this lovely letter. Clearly, there's no abuse happening. That's just something that that Rochelle has made up, mm-hmm. either to inflame these guys or to get sympathy on her blog. But it's not actually happening. There is, I think, a third possibility that the show didn't lean into that Brian sort of vaguely suggests or is through editing allowed to vaguely suggest, which is that Rochelle was trying to call it off, but Jason wouldn't allow that to happen because Lori was trying to end their relationship that Jason wanted the murder plot to go through to fruition so that this last obstacle keeping him from his girlfriend could be taken out. I'm not saying I necessarily believe that's true, but I think that was maybe added into the defense I think pool. given the nature of these two young men, that we're looking at something that's more akin to that um, that poor girl who's now in prison, but she convinced the guy to kill her mom who was making her sick. In Munchausen by Proxy. Oh, right. That was the uh, act. Yeah, I think the it's act called, is the is movie the, on Hulu. That's what about this it, yeah, reminded TV me show. of. These yeah. guys seem to be maybe not a full deck of, you know, one, a couple of sandwiches short of a picnic. Yeah. They, it doesn't seem like they're the, um, the most astute. And as Brian even pointed out, either of them would be lucky to be with a girl like Rochelle, who, while she seems like a nice girl, is not. Um, what is it, Morgan Fairchild? Right. You know, she's not, she, there's nothing amazing about her. She seems like a lovely young woman and apparently is bright and perspicacious and talented, but but not the most, like, anybody would fall for. It's, mm-hmm. it's, it, they seem like they're being manipulated. I, I really felt like Rochelle was, in an immature way, imagining how great things would be if her mother was dead and she could do whatever she wanted to because... As a child, you don't think things all the way through mm-hmm. in, a, in terms of their consequences. And and I think she used those manipulative details not only to, you know, build uh, followers on her blog, but also to manipulate those two men mm-hmm. into doing what she wanted them to do. The courts apparently didn't see it quite that way. I was stunned. She gets a three-year prison sentence. Uh, when it goes to trial, Jason is coming down really hard on on his assertion that she was the mastermind that she absolutely wanted this to happen she and was he had absolutely cooperated. right he had pressure she had pressured him to get Brian to do it because for some reason they thought Brian was the killer the man of his word as he said um and the judge ultimately had to decide sentencing for her which suggests maybe there was a jury trial to determine her culpability and they found her guilty and it just became a three-year sentence in the hands of the judge maybe i don't know i don't know that they did not really cover was... the trial that's what i'm saying it was not it didn't have the kind of following it through sort of suspense of some other of the shows that we like to watch we didn't there wasn't even the suspense of going through the trial really at all. There was some general references to it, but there was no real surprises. And the sentencing was described to us in, in a title card in at title the very cards end. after the in you know, white letters on black background after the end of the show. I think it they tried, I agree with you. I think they tried to create suspense around the question of whether or not Rochelle was the mastermind. And for me, they introduced two things at the end that absolutely doomed her in my mind. And you talked about one of them earlier. It was the reveal that before her mother's body was discovered, she had been spreading the drunk driving story. And everybody knew Lori Waterman didn't drink. Right. So that was that Which was means one of she them. knew where her mother was. She yeah. knew what the outcome of the plot is because that was what they originally planned was to get her drunk and make it look like she had died in a car wreck. Right. And then the other thing was... And how would she know that? The letter that they discovered during a search of the house, the handwritten letter from the mother to the daughter, which I they don't... 
make uh, Jason read it, but I, I, do they read it in his presence or do I think they voice over it and they show him crying and basically Brian. Um, Brian, excuse yeah, me. Brian is clearly cooperating them with them because he is devastated that he has done this. Brian says the direct quote is, uh, "She did love her daughter." He's speaking of Lori Waterman, and she hadn't done what I thought she'd done, and so I murdered an innocent woman. Yeah, like Brian is really like clearly made. He's had some come to Jesus moment, literally or figuratively, and has realized that he was. Um, fed a load of bullshit and convinced to do something that wasn't really warranted. <sighs> I just don't see how the girl could have known what the pl- the outcome of their plot was if she didn't know what their plot was. Yeah, I, I agree. I just it <clears throat> disturbed me so badly that Brian's descriptions of the murder disturbed me because it, there was an emotional tone to them that I wasn't used to. It wasn't like a lot of times when they do confessional videos with serial killers. They relate the details of their crimes as if they're confessing to having used drugs or, or, or given into this terrible compulsion, and they're speaking of it as if somebody else did it. But he was talking about it in this ordinary way that got to me, and I felt absolute rage towards Rochelle, and I had to remind myself that she was a teenager. It's like it, it made me afraid for the things that teenagers can use to weaponize their mood swings, and their immaturity. You know what it made me think of? What? Was the Crucible or the Salem Witch Trials Mm -hmm. where those teenage girls' accusations caused all of those people to be put to death. Right. Which really was, which was kind of what was happening. This Mm -hmm. teenage girl was, you know, bemoaning all of this stuff. People took her word for it and carried out sentencing without due process Mm -hmm. um, based on Something that nothing against teenage girls, but really like there's due process. And right. If somebody is abusing a child, there are actual steps that you can take mm-hmm. to try and combat that abuse. There's whole agencies in the government to protect children. And mm-hmm. none of that was pursued at any level by anyone. The other because the, it wasn't happening. Nobody was aware of it. Doc that was the other thing. The story. Doc completely vanishes. The husband of Lori completely vanishes from uh, this episode, there's no attempt. I guess he wouldn't be interviewed. Is probably part of it, but there's no attempt to document what he said in response to these allegations of abuse. You know, yeah, which I, I mean, thought clearly there was there would he would there was no sense of it. Right. Like obviously he was wouldn't have anything to do with any of it because he'd lost his wife and his daughter. Yeah. Effectively in one fell swoop. Yeah, it was it was a pretty brutal. It was a very what is it called a dark night or the, the darkest dark, of nights? Yeah, it was yeah. pretty dark. I was it was a dark story, and it was maybe not as artfully told as it might have been. I mm-hmm. I think it could have been a more suspenseful story. I'm not sure. I, I didn't really pause to think how I would have produced it differently. But some sense of what the trial was, some sense of. Of the you know the the way that the justice unfolded, well, here's and the, not rushing to give me the full explanation from Brian of exactly how because he basically just allocated, you know, to having committed the crime and and how he did it I, I, about midway yeah. through the episode. There was after that there was we were really just sort of sweeping up details and and as you said, considering the the question of whether or not Rochelle was the mastermind or just one of the participants, and that's and, and how I would have done it. Now. I would have. I, I had a kind of different take. I think they should have started with Brian's confession, and then the question to explore in detail was actually around the trial and how much involvement Rochelle was. Rochelle the mastermind or not? Because I felt like that that got rushed. Like we didn't see any of Rochelle's trial. We didn't hear about any of the evidence. We just saw presented. her crying at the witness table they even, that one moment, they and that's in, it. They introduce a defense attorney, but because they're so worried about spoiling it, they don't identify her. I assumed she was Rochelle's defense attorney because he speaks ill of Brian and Jason Still later. With the blue eyes. Yeah, his name was. He's on my cheat sheet. Steve Wells. Was his name the the Steve Wells of Craig Alaska? He probably of was bus benches from all a nearby over large Craig. city. Absolutely. They so had buses or boat benches, whatever. But do you think this is a case with a lot of the episodes that we talk about, where it's like you needed more than an hour for this? Like some of this was about how you had to cram it into this hour. Like we talk about some the Dateline that we discussed, the thing about Pam. That was actually a two hour episode. Yeah. Sometimes it seems like with Datelines, there's not enough. Like they they thread it out. 
Phil Hartman, the ABC News special we discussed in a previous episode, that was also, I think, an hour and a half or two hours mm -hmm. on, on broadcast right. with commercials. So I think sometimes there's this shortcutting that happens, and it makes me want to go and research the case because I feel like I, I, I never want to say I'm justifying a murder, but I think there can be moments where you have more details that make a motive become clearer. It's almost like you need that to determine somebody's guilt. I guess it's to me it's about what your purpose is in telling the story. Right. Like I think because this is People magazine, it really was simply about telling the story. Right. Whereas what you're talking about is considering a story. Right. Right, where we're going to analyze, okay, so what really what were the motives here? What who were these players and who were these people and I just think different shows have different points of attack. Yeah. I think changing the point of attack can completely change the story itself. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Like if you start, as you say, with the confession, well then, okay, that's a completely different, or if you, because the, the, the Vanity Fair one that we did um, last, uh, two weeks ago, was they told us that the murder had happened right at the top. Yeah. And that who had confessed to it. Mm -hmm. And if you haven't listened to it, spoiler alert, that's how it goes two episodes earlier. Yeah. We, we, we try not to spoil, but most of these murders happened 10 or 15 years ago. So <laughs> it's like we're not, we're not well, the, uh, so we're, we're not breaking the news. Now, if we're you will. really about the, um, the, the true crime TV yeah. shows because that's the thing that we truly love. So that's all, usually my focus in these anyway. Mm -hmm. This one was just a particularly dark story and disturbing in that a child was allowed that kind of um, uh, latitude in condemning another person to death, basically. Yeah, and this many years later, the killer is saying that he was put up to this and he feels he, he's living with the fact that he killed an innocent person. Yeah, it person. really, really, it, it, it weighed wow. heavier on him than it did on pretty much anybody else in the story. Well, it is making me glad, this particular episode, that we are doing the alternating structure currently, so when we're back with our new episode <laughs> next week, it will not be an episode of True Crime TV Club. That will be the episode after. We will be talking we about just something. We talking about, Chris, our, our concept for a restaurant that we call Sauce and Frosting. Sauce and Frosting, that's which right. Which we won't reveal anything else. You'll have to Tune in next week sauce to find and out frosting. about sauce and frosting. Hashtag sauce and frosting. All right. Well, this has been another episode of our podcast featuring True Crime TV Club. I'm Christopher Rice. And I'm Eric Shaw Quinn. And you've been listening to TDPS Presents Christopher. And Eric. Thanks. Thanks.